I've been talking about this battle against the city of Ai. And I noticed that the, the battle that Israel had against the people of Ai happened in two stages, really. The first stage was a surprising defeat. In phase two, Israel was soundly victorious. First stage, they go up against Ai, and, and it's, it's shameful. They get driven away. They flee for their very lives. They lose 36 men. In the second stage, they come back strong, and they soundly wipe out all of Ai. And there's something to be learned in the obvious differences between these two attempts on this one city in the Promised Land. And keep in mind, as we have been doing, we are talking about not only the history of Joshua, but we're talking about the practicality of living a Spirit-filled life of moving forward in the Holy Spirit, of learning to listen to the Spirit of God in the same way that Joshua and the people learned to listen to God as they came into the Promised Land. Living a Spirit-filled life as a Christian is entering into those promises, taking possession of the promises of God as we've talked about many times. But when you look at these two battles, in the first battle, Joshua sent in Israel lights. Israel lights. You've got to think about that. He sent in 3,000 men out of an army of almost 600,000. That's Israel light. Just a little scant fighting crew because it seemed like an easy battle. In the second battle, he sent in Israel supersized. The whole army goes against Ai. And if you read in chapter 8, it's fascinating the whole strategy, the battle plan that's used. He sent 30,000 men, 10 times the original army, just up behind Ai to the north to ambush it. Then he takes 5,000 of those men, sends them to the west to cut off Bethel from Ai so they can't get any reinforcements and they can't flee that direction. He has two ambushes set up. And then Joshua and the rest of the people come from the southeast toward Ai. And when they begin to flee and the people in the city of Ai see them fleeing again, the whole thing is a setup. They leave the city undefended, chase after the Israelites to the southeast, and the team to the north comes pouring into the city and takes it. The team from the west cuts off Bethel and takes the city. And then those who are fleeing turn around and come back, and they completely take out this city of 12,000 people. First battle, Joshua sent in a mini-crew. The second battle, he sent in the entire army. And it reminds me that we are not to toy with the enemy. Whether the sin or the challenge or the struggle in our life is large or small, don't toy with Satan. Don't toy with sin. Don't play with Don't think, ah, I can, I can just deal with this a little bit. I can handle it. In the first battle, they fought AI with self-confidence, sure that they could take it. In the second battle, they fought AI with spirit counsel. He was fighting the way he was directed by the Lord. And yet again, so they were victorious. It's one thing, we talked about this last week and Wednesday night, it's one thing to be spirit-filled. Lots of people can claim to be spirit-filled. The question is, are you spirit-led? Are you spirit-led? Are you praying about it? Are you talking to the Lord? Are you in communication with Him? Are you seeking His counsel? It doesn't do you any good. It's, it's the old adage, going to, uh, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. It's not what changes you. It's being spirit-led. In the first battle, there's sin in the camp, which rendered Israel uncovered. In the second battle, there was repentance, which resulted in covering. 
and then went up against Ai without God at all because God wasn't present because of the sin that was there. In the second battle, because they repented, turned to the Lord, they had covering. And gang, where there's secret sin, we are left exposed, uncovered. It's really hard to fight spirit battles in your life when you've got some sin that you're burying that you're not willing to deal with, that you're not repenting of. You just kind of are setting it to the side and ignoring it, hoping it'll just go away. And what that does is it leaves you uncovered for other battles. And the Lord says, man, turn to me. Let's make sure there's communication. And then you're covered. In the first battle, Joshua took time off. He didn't even fight. In the second battle, Joshua took his spear and held it high. Look at verse 18 of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. So Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. Skip down to verse 26. And Joshua did not withdraw his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. There are two ways to take that. One is it's figurative. That Joshua stayed strong and fought strong the whole battle. And the other one is literal, and I believe it's literal. That Joshua stood there through the whole battle, javelin raised toward Ai. And he did not withdraw the javelin through the entire battle, through the day, until the inhabitants were completely, utterly destroyed. That javelin was raised high, pointed toward the city. Father, we need to learn from this. And there is a picture here. It has to do, Lord, with the passion of Joshua and the persistency and and the, the constancy and the commitment to following through and the trust that he placed in you. May we see this in him this morning and understand how it applies to us. So Spirit, teach us these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if the Lord ever gets tired of our prayer. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there has got to be a constant drone, a blah, blah, blah that floats up out of this world day in and day out. If you saw the movie Bruce Almighty, you might remember there's a scene there where where Bruce has been given the role of trying to play God. And he decides that he's to handle all these prayers, he's just going to have them put on post-it notes. And if you recall the scene, suddenly the entire room he was in was just covered wall to wall with post-it notes and he was too and they just kept flying into the room. And then he decides he's going to do it by email and all of a sudden it just the emails start coming in and they don't stop. And it's just constant drone because he's trying to hear these prayers and it's driving him nuts because it never stops. Blah, 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 blah. And sometimes I wonder, is that what it's like for the Lord? Our prayers keep going up. Prayers from think about every person on the face of the planet. 6.4, 6.5 billion people crying out, calling out, some not even knowing who they're calling out to, but the constant drone. And I wonder, are there some prayers that grab God's attention while others are, are left just floating? Is there a way to pray effectively rather than meaninglessly? Because there is meaningless prayer. Jesus said in Luke 18, tells a story. It says two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, he stood and was praying this to himself. It's a key phrase, to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers and unjust and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. 
But the tax collector, Jesus said, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Who do you think he heard? Whose prayer went to the ears of the Lord? Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Clearly, there's more. That prayer is, is more than words. It's not just speaking out something. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, When you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. And you've heard it, you've been in churches where someone will stand up to pray, and they'll go on and on and on saying the same thing again and again and again, and you're going, okay, after a while, I get it, I get it. I think the Lord heard you after that first sentence. Maybe you do it. When you really want to get in touch with the Lord, you're thinking, okay... It's my phrase. If I can just come up with a really good religious sounding phrase here. Or two or three. And maybe that will get the Lord's attention. And Jesus says, God knows what you need before you ask Him. Meaningless phrases and empty words and repetition. It doesn't make any difference. And I think, well, if God knows what I need before I ask Him, why ask? (laughs) What's the point? He already knows. It's already in my head. He knows what's going on. Why pray at all? And the answer is because the Lord wants to know you. The Lord wants to know you. Ever since those wonderful afternoon walks with Adam and Eve in the garden, the Lord has been trying to woo us back to Eden. We've talked about this before. God's purpose in this world since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, since that first fall and the continual fall of man ever since, God has been saying, come back to the garden. Come back and walk with me. Come back in the cool of the day and let's be in fellowship together. Let's spend time together. Let's walk and talk and know each other. And my friends, prayer is the place where relationship is restored. Prayer is the place that God meets us and fellowships with us. And while so often we come before the Lord in prayer with our requests and our petitions and the things on our mind, He's just saying, it's so good to be with you. Forget about what you're saying. I'm just so glad you're here. Even the most senseless prayer with with, with no real big deal. You know, Father, the the car won't start this morning or the heater won't work. Please make the heater work. And we're praying, please make the heater work. And God's going, isn't it great that we're just talking? Because we're trying to get the heater to work. I'm just so glad we're in conversation this morning. Lord, please make the heater work. Isn't this wonderful? Because God is about relationship. When Cheryl and I, in our marriage, are feeling out of touch, we stop. We talk. When our family life is getting chaotic, as happens from time to time, we have learned that it doesn't slow down, it doesn't relax until we get face to face. We went out last night, just husband and wife, went to the movies, ran into some friends there, and they wanted us to see the movie they were seeing. We said, no, we're going to see the movie we're seeing because this is about us. Selfish, you know. We had the me flags up last night. Because we needed communication. Because we needed time spent together. That's when life settles back down. I I know in my marriage, in my friendships, in my relationships. And prayer, gang, prayer is one of the greatest indicators of where you are with God. And I'm just speaking honestly. I've seen this in my own life over and over. When I'm not praying much, I'm distant. 
when I'm not in prayer, when I'm not talking to the Father, my relationship is passionless and dry. It may tell you something of where you are with the Lord if you're finding that your prayer life is empty right now. That there is no heart, no no passion, no desire. You're finding, if you're thinking thoughts like, I really need to pray about this, I'll get to that later. (laughs) That says something about you, where you are with the Father. But the good news is this, God knows it, and He loves us so much, He will do whatever it takes to bring us to our knees. Whatever it takes. Be it a cold barn on a Sunday morning, or a tragedy in your life, God will do what it takes to bring you to your knees. Because He loves you too much to leave you outside of relationship. He wants us in passionate prayer. Great. What does that have to do with Joshua's javelin at the battle of Ai? Well, what do you think about Joshua for a moment and what led up to Ai? Because we learned some things about Joshua several years before this. Back in the book of Exodus chapter 33, one verse says a lot about Joshua and his history. It says that when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And we learn two things right off the bat about Joshua in that verse. Number one, he was a servant of Moses. He was Moses' apprentice. And much of what he had learned and knew about leading Israel, he learned from Moses. You should expect to see some pattern there. Some of Joshua's behavior mimicking or following the example of Moses' behavior because he was his servant. Moses was Joshua's mentor. What an awesome mentor that would be. And so we know that, but we also know that Joshua wanted to be where the Lord was. For the verse tells us that even when Moses was done speaking with the Lord and went back to the camp, Joshua wouldn't leave the tent. He stayed right there. Just waiting for the next appearance, waiting for the next comment, the next statement from the Lord. He wanted to be where the Lord was. Mentored by Moses and wanting to be where the Lord was, those two things will define Joshua's leadership of Israel later on. You can see this play out again and again. In fact, it takes us back to a defining moment in Joshua's training. A moment that happened even before Exodus 33. Back in Exodus chapter 17. In fact, flip in your Bibles back there if you will. Exodus chapter 17. There's a defining moment in Joshua's history and his background and his learning. And by the way, it's the first time we meet Joshua in the Bible. You don't see him before this, but suddenly in Joshua 17, here's this young man Joshua, and he's a warrior. Verse 8 tells us something about it. And by the way, Exodus 17 is, I believe, the first passage of biblical scripture ever written. The first one ever written. You'll see why in just a moment. Verse 8 of Exodus 17 tells us that Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. It's one of their first battles. And so Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek, and tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it came about when Moses held his hand up, he's got his staff in his hand, as he said before, when his hand is held up, Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other. Thus his hands were, se- were steady until the sun set, so he had his and her support. <laughs> Aaron and Hur. 
what you think about that. We said that Wednesday night and people got it, but let me say it again. And they, anyway, verse 13. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Why? Because Moses' hands were up. Raised. He had the staff in his hand. And while that staff was in his hand, his hands were raised. He had Aaron and her on either side holding his hands up with him. He got three men on top of a mountain with their hands raised before the Lord. And the battle was won. Verse 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner, as Jehovah Nisi. And he said, The Lord has sworn and the Lord, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. It's a great story. But 40 years have passed since this battle in Joshua's life. I don't know how many of you can think back 40 years. I was a young man then. Two years old. I don't remember a whole lot about what was going on. I'm sure when I'm in my 70s or 80s, Lord willing, I could look back 40 years. But Joshua had a 40 year distance. In fact, we know at the time of the book of Joshua, he's 80 years old, leading the conquest into Canaan. An 80 year old man fighting. That's so cool. So he's about 40 at the, at the battle of Rephidim against Amalek. And he's thinking back now. 40 years have passed, but Joshua would never forget this battle. He would never forget. How do we know that? Well, he knew it by experience. He fought the battle, so it was part of his his memory. But he heard it by training again and again from Moses. Because God said, recite this to Joshua. I want Joshua to hear this. I want Joshua to be aware of this. Tell the story, Moses, again and again. And the Lord also said, write it in a book so Joshua could read it later. Then I could see Joshua before they're entering Canaan pouring over the scroll that we have in Exodus 17 but I believe was the first scripture ever written because it was written before they came to Mount Sinai. They come to Mount Sinai after that and when they come to Mount Sinai that's when Moses receives the Ten Commandments receives all the commandments and writes them down for the people. Well this is before that. And the Lord says write down what happens here. I want Joshua to read this again and again. It would be significant Because the ripple effect of the battle of Rephidim can be seen as Joshua goes up against Ai. The Lord says, Joshua, stretch out your javelin toward the city. And bing, Joshua remembers something and his mind goes off. Wait a minute. I remember a battle like that. Rephidim. Moses held his staff over the city. And as long as that staff was up, we were victorious. But when the staff came down, we lost. Now they go up against Ai. And God says, raise your javelin against the city. And he does. And the Bible tells us that javelin stayed up the entire battle. Why? Joshua remembered. He remembered Rephidim. Moses' staff, Joshua's javelin. Back in Joshua chapter 8, it tells us he did not, verse 26, withdraw his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. And both these stories, whether it be Rephidim and the people fighting there with Moses and his staff raised high, or Ai, where the people fight and Joshua and his javelin are raised high, both of these stories are potent and powerful pictures of prayer. It's what they indicate to us. Men with their hands held up in prayer. They're powerful pictures. James, in James chapter 5, verse 16. He says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, I like the King James translation of this verse a lot better because it's more accurate. 
King James translation says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. The effectual fervent prayer. Our English word effective that's used in the NASB and the NIV and some other translations, it doesn't do the Greek word justice. For the Greek word here that's translated effective is energeo. What do you think that means? It's where we get our word energy. Energetic, passionate, fervent, urgent prayer. Now, how many of you all fall asleep or have your minds wander while you're praying? We're missing a little energeto, aren't we? Some of the passion, where is it? Where's that fervency? Where's that urgency? I'll tell you what the problem is when we fall asleep praying or when our minds wander. It's because religiosity is boring. And there's far too much religiosity in our prayer. It's too tedious. We have 2,000 years of man trying to figure out how to pray. It's working against us. And if our prayers are tedious to us, think about how the Lord must feel. The Bible says in Psalm 121.3 that he who keeps you will not slumber, which means the Lord is not afforded the opportunity, the blessing of nodding off while we pray. At least we get to fall asleep. At least if we're bored, we just kind of wander off. The Lord's paying attention. He's hearing. Now, I really don't think that you and I bore God. His love is too great. And I believe He delights when we just come to Him to talk to Him. But I do know a couple of things to be absolutely true about prayer. And you may want to jot these down. Number one, prayer indicates the intensity of our passion for God. Our prayer indicates the intensity of our passion for Him. And the Lord is listening, and He's listening for passionate, expectant, hungry, even desperate people of prayer. It's what He longs for from us. And it's what we need, not liturgy or endless, sleepy, boring repetition. Think about the biblical examples of prayer we have. Think about how people pray throughout the Bible. You don't see religiosity like we have built up over the years. You see men like Abraham back in Genesis 18. Abraham finds out from the Lord that God is going to destroy Sodom. And there's an entire chapter here where Abraham is basically bargaining with God, pleading with God. And he starts out saying, Lord, if there are 50 righteous men in Sodom, will you destroy the whole city and those 50 men with it? And the Lord says, well, all right, for 50 men I'll let it go. And Abraham goes, you know, I've been thinking about this. What what if there's 40? Well, for 40 righteous men? And God goes, well, okay, I'll spare the city for 40. Yeah, but okay, what if there's 30? I mean, the audacity of Abraham to try and change God's mind. And he bargains God all the way down to ten men. And as you read that prayer, this is a man who is passionate because he knows his nephew Lot lives in Sodom. And he's thinking, I've got, I got to save him. God, you're not going to do it. What about later on when Abraham is praying to the Lord about his son Ishmael? Not Isaac, Ishmael. God comes to Abraham and says, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him Isaac. And, and, and Abraham says, Lord, if only Ishmael could be my firstborn. And, and he goes, no, he's not going to be your firstborn. Passion. It's what you hear from Abraham. What about Jacob? Oh, I love this story. G- Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 through 32. And you can read these stories. Go back. I encourage you to do it this week. Genesis 32 Jacob has a wrestling match. Jacob and Jesus wrestle all night long. It's one of those many Old Testament Christophanies where Jesus shows up, God shows up in the flesh, and he's wrestling with Jacob, and Jacob cries out, I will not let you go until you bless me. 
And he holds on to him and he clings to him and he actually, the Lord allows this, he actually wins. He keeps him pinned down until finally Jesus says, all right, I'm going to bless you. And then Jesus touches Jacob's hip and it wrenches it. All he did was touch it. A reminder of, I got more power in my little finger than you have in your entire wrestling body. But there's a great picture of prayer. A man who will wrestle with the Lord over something. Are you struggling? Do you have some kind of pain or issue or struggle in your life? Wrestle with the Lord. Bring it before Him. Be a Jacob. Like Jacob, God invites us to wrestle with Him through the night. To struggle with Him. What about Moses? Again, in Exodus 33, verse 11, it tells us the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. And we saw this over and over as we studied Moses that he literally changed God's mind at some points. That he was passionate when he talked to the Lord. His entire conversational life with God is astounding, even challenging the Lord at times. And God loved it. He loved it. That relationship that he had with Moses. Because Moses was real. By the way, Moses who is called a friend of God. Jesus said in John 14, 15, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends, for all the things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. And friends, when they hang out together... I mean, tell me, do you do this? Do you go up to a friend you haven't seen in a while and go, Hey, how's it going? How are you, <laughs> And I have some things that I'd like to request of you. And you talk to him. And Moses was a friend of God, an example of how we are to come before the Lord, Elijah. And this story is one for the books. 1 Kings 18, verses 41 through 46. Elijah is on Mount Carmel, and he's praying for rain. He had already prayed that it would stop raining, and it did. And now he's praying that it would begin to rain. And he's got his little servant there, Gehazi. And Gehazi, he says, go out and look and see if there's any rain. Josh, or, or Elijah prays for rain. Gehazi goes out and he looks and he goes, no, I don't see anything. So Elijah prays again. Gehazi goes out and he looks... A little cloud out on the horizon. So Elijah prays again seven times. And by the way, the position that the Bible tells us Elijah was in was kneeling down with his head between his knees. It was the birthing position. He was in the position of a woman giving birth as he prayed these seven times for it to rain, birthing the prayer, struggling through it. It was fervent, effectual prayer. And that's what is used as the example by James in James 5.16. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man subject to passions as we are. Just like us. But he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. What do you think God's thinking while Elijah's down there with his head between his knees as though he were given birth? This guy's serious. He's passionate. He wants this to happen. He truly believes it will. And I believe the Lord was saying, All right, Elijah. Now we're on the same page. And we've said it many times, and we've seen every week recently, that faith is taking possession of the promises of God. That's all Elijah was doing. That's all Jacob was doing. 
all Abraham was doing or Moses was doing, taking possession of the promises, passionately praying before the Lord. And it's the prayer of faith that births the promises of God. It's someone who's fervent and passionate. And Jesus said in Matthew 21, verse 21, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And I don't think he was being figurative. If you will pray believing, it will happen. And then he says, all things that you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. John 16, 23, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, He'll give it to you. Until you, now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be full. For a prayer in faith births the promises of God. And gang, prayer indicates our passion for the Lord. But the second thing to note this morning... Well, hold on, I'll tell you that in a minute. This whole idea of birthing prayer, let me just say one more thing about it. You ladies understand something that we men do not understand, and that's what it means to birth something. We don't truly get that. Unless a man has a kidney stone, maybe that, you know, maybe some idea. By the way, it's just not fair that my wife not only gave birth to our three children, but also had a kidney stone. <laughs> Where's the justice in that? But um, I told her I, I felt for her. Anyway, biblical examples of faithful prayer, and I wish that wasn't on the tape. Biblical examples of faithful prayer go on and on and on. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, he says, Time will fail me if I talk about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David or Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. He says, man, every example I can think of in the Bible, the Hebrew writer says, is an example of people who are real and passionate before the Lord. And it makes all the difference in the world. And we sit in our comfortable churches. We bow our heads. And we say our 30 second to 1 minute prayers. And we wonder why there's lifelessness in us. And we wonder why we're not excited to get up on a Sunday and go to church. And we wonder why when Wednesday night comes along we'd rather stay home and watch TV than hear the word. And we wonder why our lives are not changed and altered radically by the Spirit of the Lord as we pray those 30 second prayers with full of religiosity. So the Lord wants relationship. It's relationship, relationship, relationship. It's not about liturgy. It's about longing. It's not about religious piety. It's about relational passion. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer is a javelin held high until the battle is won and not let down and not let go. It's commitment. It's constancy. And it's hard work. It is one of the hardest things you will learn to do as a believer in Jesus Christ. It's pray. But prayer also, secondly, is not only an indicator of our intensity for the Lord, but prayer in the heat of battle is never boring. Prayer in the heat of battle is never boring. I would love an audio file of the battle of AI. 
just a little tape recorder in Joshua's pocket there that we could hear what Joshua was saying. Right flank, come around. Let the left flank now attack. Whoa, that was a close one, Lord. Take care of the men. Keep an eye on them. Let's fight on, men. Archers, fire, swordsmen, advance. Father, cover us. Protect us. Be with us, Lord. I mean, I just have this sense back and forth as he's calling out commands with that spear held high. At the same time, he is fervently in prayer throughout the, the entire battle with that javelin held high in the air, not resting until it was done. That's passion. That's heart. And remember what we're talking about. The picture is the spirit-filled, spirit-led life. And all that to say this about the heat of battle. Sometimes the Lord not only allows but even uses painful struggles and skirmishes and the heat of battle. Why? To stir up our hearts to fervent prayer. We wonder why there's pain in our lives and the Father's saying, I'm trying to get your attention. We wonder why there's struggle and, and heartache. Listen, Jericho was an absolute miracle. All they had to do was march around the city seven times, basically just show up, and God provided. He busted down the wall. AI, the first time, was a painful disaster. It was horrendous. The entire camp of Israel was emotionally impacted by this tragedy. But at the second battle of Ai, Joshua finally, fervently prayed and they prevailed. And do you remember why Ai, the first battle, was such a disaster? It's because there was sin in the camp. But Joshua would have known there was sin in the camp if he had prayed before the battle, and he didn't. He didn't. Why didn't he pray? Why didn't he consult Eliezer, the high priest? Because it appeared easy. And when it appears easy, we figure it's none of God's business. He doesn't have to deal with it. We'll take care of it. Okay, do you know what the, what the word AI means? Those of you who are here Wednesday night, we talked about this. AI. It means a heap. A little dumpy place. I don't even know why they named it that, but they did. AI. This is my town, the heap. We live on a heap. And Joshua knew, ah, oh, we can take them, no problem. It's a dump. But the loss tore Joshua up. Just listen to this prayer. Joshua chapter 7, going back in verse 5. Listen to how Joshua's praying here. It says, The men of Ai struck down about 36 of the Israelites and pursued them from the gate as far as Shevarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their foreheads. And you don't see the elders in this situation gathering around saying, Lord, we pray that you would bless the people of Israel. They are tearing their clothes on their face. They are in anguish and agony and pain before the Lord. And Joshua says in verse 7, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan? Only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say? Since Israel has turned their back before their enemies, the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. They'll surround us. They'll cut off your name, our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? This is not the prayer of the religious. This is the prayer of a man in pain for his people. A man who possibly of the 36 men, some of those could have been Joshua's friends. 
And even if they, were, if they weren't his friends, they were friends of people in Israel. And the people were hurting and they were suffering. And Joshua's prayer is exactly where we can be when we're in pain going, Why are you letting this happen? Why, Father? Joshua's pain before the Lord crying out. And you can almost hear the Lord saying, Now you're talking. Now we're communicating. Now you and I are connected, Joshua. Now I can help. Because we're in this together. When it was hard and challenging and difficult and painful, Joshua never let the javelin down. He never stopped praying until victory was absolute. Listen, some of you today are in a world of hurt. And I've learned over the years that any given Sunday, somebody... And usually it's many people are dealing with some kind of painful issue or struggle. It could be a physical problem. It could be emotional. It could be a family relationship that's broken. A friendship that's hurting. It could be a spiritual emptiness. And you may have been praying and seeking the Lord and you're wondering why God isn't doing something about it. And I submit to you, He has already begun if you're praying about it. If you're to the place in your life where you're crying out to the Lord because you don't know where else to turn... He is engaged. And that's exactly where he wanted you to be. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. I love this quote. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. And God speaks to us in our conscience. But he shouts at us in our pain. He shouts at us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. And we can so easily float along in this dull, lifeless, religious stupor or worse, an abject, sleepy rebellion to the truth of salvation in Jesus Christ. But suddenly, suddenly, when the flash of pain hits, we are wide awake. My son works at Papa Murphy's. I'll tell this 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 hour. I won't tell it next hour because he'll be here and and will hear me. But... He works along in the make line, uh, making pizza there, and, and he, he gets going good, and then he'll just kind of slow down, and his mind will wander off, and, and Jeff, his boss, will, will say, Corey, you need to move faster. Oh, yeah, oh, okay. And, and I told Jeff, here's the solution to the problem. Put a little shock collar around Corey's neck. <laughs> and anytime he's slowing down, just sit back in your office and press the button. Just, oh, okay, got to you know. And I'm being funny, but gang, that is... How God uses pain in our lives. It's like a shock collar. It drives us out of our sleepiness and back into relationship because He is passionate about us even when we're not passionate about Him. He's saying, I don't want you to miss relationship with me because if you miss relationship with me, you will miss eternity. Because it's not about how good you are. It's not about the things that you've done. It's about your relationship with me. Do we know each other? Do we know each other? Pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Man, I settle into comfortable, non-confrontational Christianity and suddenly, bam, my kids are in trouble. Or my wife is being attacked. Or my friends are upset. Or my body is physically dealing with some kind of illness. And I am right back on my knees, which is where God wants me to be. Before Him. Well, that makes God sound like a tyrant. No. He's a father doing everything to save His children. 
And I'll tell you what, if your son or daughter fell overboard of a ship and they were drowning and you had to hurt them just getting them out of the water, you'd do it. You wouldn't think, oh, I've got to be careful not to bruise them as I'm pulling them up into the boat. No, you would grab and pull whatever it takes to save them. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Don't miss this. I don't care how hard your life is right now. I do care. But it doesn't matter how hard your life is right now compared to eternity. There is a day coming when you will stand before the Father and worship with all of the saints and you will look back at the piddly little pain that you had in your life and go, man, I will go through that a million times over just to be here right now. We're on this side of the fence. And this side of the fence can be painful and can hurt. But that side of the fence is what he's drawing us to. And when we're there, here is not going to be, it's going to be a blip. And I know pain because I have felt and dealt with pain many times over in my life. And in my darkest moments, I can think, I don't think I can take this any longer. And then the Lord reminds me, oh, the present sufferings of this world. It's nothing. It's just to get you to there. Because the glory and the joy and the peace and the happiness of being in the presence of God will be so absolutely overwhelming that it's worth it. And you and I and every one of us will say that. I guarantee you, check with me on that day. You will say, it was worth every ounce of pain that I went through. Every moment of despair, every moment of loneliness, every hurt that I had to go through was worth it for me to be here. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, and this is a earth-shattering revelation, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, and listen to this, I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. It was never about your ability to prophesy. It was never about your evangelistic campaigns. It was never about your church attendance or your Bible memorization. It was about knowing each other. I want to know you. And if you're all caught up in the boredom of life, such that you never talk to me, how can we know each other? And so I'm going to send a little pain your way. To knock you out of your sleepiness. To wake you up. So that we can continue on this process of relationship together. And I know it hurts. Father knows. I watched Hayden get knocked off his feet at the basketball game Saturday. It was friendly fire. One of his friends on the team passed him the ball. Passed it really hard. He's about two feet away and he passed it like he was 20. And it nailed Hayden in the head and knocked him literally off his feet onto the floor. And as father, I rushed out there. I knew he was in pain. It was awful. And I all but carried him back to the sideline. I'm like, just play the game. I'm the coach. You guys play. I'm the dad right now. Because Father does know how the pain hurts. He does understand that. But He also does allow it. Because He knows it will get us there. It will keep us close. 
This may sound weird, but I would bet that there are some of you who deal with pain in a way that many others don't, who when you get there will have a deeper relationship. And I have seen this time and time again. People who deal with pain on a daily basis, who have a deeper relationship with the Lord than people whose lives just seem to be carefree. Something about that. Now this morning I could have easily gone on to chapter 9, which we'll do Wednesday night. But this issue of passionate prayer and real relationship with God is critical to life and eternity. Because outside of that relationship with Jesus, eternity is lost. It's lost. Let me ask you, can you get passionate about that? Do you want to know the Lord? Do you have friends or family who don't have a relationship with God? Can you be passionate about praying that they be saved? Just as Abraham was passionate about saving Lot's life, this is my nephew, I can't see Sodom go down. Look, Lord, there's got to be some way that we can save him here. Jesus got passionate about that. That's why we call the crucifixion the passion of Christ. And by the way, our word passion comes from the Latin word passio, which literally means to suffer. To suffer. Passionate prayer, my friends, is suffering prayer. It's Elijah with his head between his knees, birthing the promises. Jacob struggling through the night. It's Daniel. And you women who are going to be taking the Daniel Bible study, I was telling Cheryl yesterday, is next to Revelation, it's my second favorite book of the whole entire Bible. It is the Old Testament Revelation. And Daniel is absolutely awesome. Daniel chapter 9, he's praying. And as Daniel prays on to the Lord, it's amazing in this chapter, he prays this prayer that they've, they've clocked it. If you read it in the Hebrew, this prayer takes roughly three minutes to pray. And when he opens his eyes at the end of the prayer, Gabriel's standing there just kind of, you know, waiting for him. He got there so quickly before he even finished the prayer. Then you go on to the next chapter and you see a completely different situation. You see Daniel praying and praying and praying to the point that he is sick on his bed for three weeks straight. But he doesn't stop. He doesn't stop. And when the answer finally comes, when Gabriel finally comes, he tells him something shocking. He said, I've been trying to break through here. But the prince of Persia, this demonic presence, wouldn't let me get through. I had to call on Michael to help me just to bust through to get to you, Daniel. What if Daniel had stopped? What if after five minutes he went, boy, God came three minutes last time. Guess he's just not listening. What if Daniel went a week and then quit? What if he hadn't pursued and passionately hung on and prayed and prayed and prayed three weeks? I'll tell you what if. We wouldn't have the magnificent prophecy that we have in Daniel chapter 10 and 11 and 12. There wouldn't have been an answer. Jesus loves us so much that he held the javelin high. Think about this. Moses held up his staff. Joshua held up his spear. Jesus was held up. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. You want to talk about passion. The passion, the suffering of Christ. 
as he prayed one very simple but most powerful prayer for all of mankind Father forgive them they don't know what they're doing and that's the picture we have with Joshua's javelin and when we pray I believe we are called to pray that way something happened here on Wednesday night it's the second time it's happened we had a visitor show up a guy named William who is of the Baha'i faith and he showed up several months ago and, and really came, came against the deity of Jesus. Stood here in this place and as our conversation went forward, he, he just got so angry to the point that at the end of the conversation, and this again was months ago, he said, Jesus is not God! Shouted that. And I said, au contraire. <laughs> And he left here angry. So Wednesday night when the door opened right before Bible study and I saw him walk in, I went, oh boy. Here we go. Part two. AI, the second battle. It's the first thing that went through my mind. And it's funny, Ephesians 6.19, Paul says, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. And after Bible study that night, when William came up, as I knew he would, and began to confront and question and challenge everything that I had taught and everything we were, we were doing here at the bridge, and he's doing that, and Les, actually he was doing it from the back of the room, and Les grabbed him and brought him up, and so we're staying there talking, the three of us. And some people left, but we had about 25 people who just stayed there, and I kept looking out, and they were all just... <laughs> they're just praying which was great because I felt bold and confident and comfortable and relaxed and just talking to William you know and, and he's wringing his hands I mean you could almost see the, the demonic presence in him as he's trying to come against the deity of Jesus Christ and this conversation is going back and forth and I gotta tell you about the first half of the conversation I was pretty proud of myself I was holding my own you know, and I'm quoting scripture, and I'm comfortable and casual. And I'm, well, William, I'm sorry, you're just wrong on that. And, and then something happened about halfway through. God opened my eyes to see His heart, and I didn't see it coming. We're talking about Jesus and talking about the only way to be saved is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything we've already talked about this morning. And William stopped and looked at me and he said, So, based on what you're saying, I stand a condemned man. And when he said that, that was how I saw him. Before, he was an enemy to battle. Before that, he was AI number one. We'll just fight him off and send him on his way and everything will be fine. And when he said that, I realized he's going to hell. This guy's going to hell. He is a this is dead man walking right in front of me. God opened my eyes and softened my heart. And from that point on, the conversation was no longer about what we believe versus what you believe. It was, William, the Lord loves you. Yeah, you do stand a condemned man. He doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want any of us to be condemned. And the whole rest of the conversation, I don't know, you know, I mean, it, it ceased to be a debate. And suddenly it became about the soul of this man. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Problem of Pain, he says... When Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. 
Not that he has some disinterested, indifferent concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. (laughs) You ask for a loving God, you got one. You want a God who cares about you and wants to be engaged in and involved in your life? Guess what? You got one. And that may be why you're hurting right now. Because He loves you too much to let your life go by in a stupor. He really loves you. He really does. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That is Jesus Christ. And that was William's problem Wednesday night. That's his problem currently. Yes, he stands condemned because he doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. And it's only through that relationship with Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And I'll tell you again, we got to, as Christians who are proclaiming the name of Jesus, we've got to stop waffling about that. We've got to stop trying to be tolerant and easygoing with non-Christian friends and just going, ah, I know that's what, that's okay. It's okay for you to believe that. No, it's not. They're going to hell. That's where they're headed. They stand condemned if they don't have faith in Jesus Christ. And that's truth. And that's painful. Let it be painful now so it can be joyful then. Confront it now so that they might have peace and pleasure for eternity. Don't back off the message now. And they may get upset with you and they may stomp out on you and you may even feel like you've lost a relationship because of it. But I'll tell you what, if it plants the seed, if it gets the gospel into their hearts and they end up saved, they will thank you in eternity. You'll be the first person they find. And I hope that for William. I hope that his life turns around and he can pinpoint it to that moment this past Wednesday night when he stood here trying to decry the deity of Jesus only to realize that he stood condemned without Jesus. Peter said in Acts 4.12 there's salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So hold the javelin high. Pray with passion until the battle is over. Don't stop until victory is attained in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we could learn to have the passion of Joshua, a man in whom was the Spirit. A man who learned the difference between being spirit-filled and ultimately spirit-led. May we be spirit-led. And I pray as I've prayed before, Father, the name of Jesus would be on all our lips. And that we would be keenly made aware of those around us who stand condemned. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ... I pray rather than hearing the phrase that they stand condemned, I pray they will hear the phrase that you love them so much that you don't want condemnation for them. And if that is you this morning and you've never accepted Jesus 
as the Savior, I invite you to do so. Pray with me now, Lord Jesus. I want to be with you. I want to be saved for eternity. And so I confess my sin to you. And I believe that you remained on the cross and that you died to take my place. And I confess this. I believe that you're resurrected. And I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior for the rest of my days. Lead me into a relationship that I might have eternity with you forever. And Father, may passion be the substance of our prayer as we pursue you in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, Amen.